This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Chelsea Bolchik, welcome to the Career Musician Podcast. Woo. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Man, we've been joined by a mutual friend, Michael Elsner, a while ago. And since then, you and I hit it off and we've just been kicking it, talking about everything, really everything except music. We've been talking about business and, and life. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. What do you call yourself? Do you call yourself an audio engineer, a sound engineer, a production? Like what, what's the preferred term? So I'm a concert sound engineer. There you go. Yeah. Okay. And I'm always used to saying FOH, front of house. Yeah. Most, yeah. I used to say that all the time. I'm like, I'm a front of house engineer. And then people were like, what is that? So I started just saying concert sound engineer. And have you done monitors? Because I know from my years of being on the road that monitor engineers always get the short end of the stick. And that's putting it nicely. <laughs> yeah. No. I I did when I first started mixing, when I was working for a little sound company, I would every now and then I'd be doing monitors at a gig, but I learned really quick to stay away from that end of the snake. <laughs> it's just, I, when I started mixing, I just, at front of house, I just stayed there. And when I was first getting started in my career, I, I would get offered monitor jobs all the time, but I didn't want to do it. And I had seen people who would start out at front of house, move to monitors and then get stuck there. Because the monitor engineers are were much harder to find. Everybody wants to mix front of house. So if you started mixing monitors and you were half decent, like you would just keep getting calls to do monitors and you'd never get back to front of house. And I didn't want that to happen. I just wanted to focus on just getting better at mixing front of house. So I would I had a couple of periods where it was a little bit lean because I was sitting at home waiting, trying to find a front of house gig and just keep getting offered monitor gigs. But I just... Uh, stuck to my guns and that that is one of the principles that i really lean into here at the career musician making a decision of where you want to go which way you want to go which path you want to take which career path and sticking to it no matter what and that's something as all of us we 
I'm sure we can relate to. I know for a musician, man, if you say, yeah, I'm a country guitarist, everybody's just going to call you for country. That's it. If you just say, I'm a, a classical flautist, then that's what you do. But if you say, oh, I play reeds, then, oh, okay, well, I play the flute, I play the clarinet, I play this, I play that. So I love that. Now, the caveat there is what you just said. You might experience some downtime. Yeah. <laughs> you have to be yeah. willing to sacrifice for the long haul, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a really important thing. Like my career path was, it's funny because people always ask me like, should I learn multiple uh, technical skills? Should I learn how to do monitors and front of house and tour manage? And should I learn production management? Should I learn this? Should I wear multiple hats? It's more of do as I say, not as I do. Because for me, I started out when I started touring, I was a front of house engineer and I realized quickly, like, this is what I want to do. It's what I'm going to focus on. You just focused, like I constantly sought out those jobs and turned down, hey, we need a tour manager slash front of house. And again, I saw people who were really good front of house engineers and they would work with the band that couldn't afford to have both. So they'd hire someone to do both jobs. Mm -hmm. And what would happen is you could be the best front of house engineer on the planet. But when that, if the band liked you as a tour manager, once they were ready to hire the second position, they were keeping you as a tour manager because it's such a personal position, like you're the personal interaction. So then you lose your front of house gig. And if you suck as a tour manager, you could still be the best front of house engineer on the planet, but they're going to lose faith in you as a front of house engineer because they don't like you as a tour manager. So it's just an, a lose situation. Oh and my gosh, 30 years on the road and you hit the nail on the head. Yeah. It was just, I saw that and I'm like, yeah, I just want to do what I do. It's great for people who are jack of all trades but then master of none and that's fine there's nothing wrong with that but like my path was this is what i want to focus on and yeah you have to be prepared that there's going to be some lean times when hey i've just been off the tour for three months because there's nothing no one needs a front of house engineer so you got to plan for that where if if you do multiple different jobs then you can okay there's no front of house gigs i'll be a backline guy or i'll be a monitor engineer or i'll do this so it all depends on what you're willing to, the risk you're willing to take and where you want to go too. Because, you know, some people start out as a sound engineer and they want to ultimately production manage. So to work all those different roles, that's great experience for, to lead to being a production manager because you need to know a little bit about each department. So if that's your goal, then yeah, focusing on different things. But it's funny you were talking about people who say, yeah, I'm a country player that was one of the things i had to fight in my career because for the longest time I, I spent about almost 10 years mixing indigo girls and i got pigeonholed as like, oh she just mixes chicks with acoustic guitars i'm like no i'm a rock and roller like i want to mix metal i grew up on 80s rock and metal and that is what i want to mix granted indigo girls were amazing i loved working for them and it was amazing music to mix but i was just like i just want to mix electric guitars and, and I had a fight to get out of that, but I didn't just go around saying, hey, I'm a, a folk, whatever you want to call it. I'm just a sound engineer, but people think that's the only thing you can do is whatever you're mixing right now. That's all you can do. And to me, it's, it's crazy because it's about hearing. It's a 
you mix folk music, you could never mix rock. It's like, I have ears. I can hear the difference, so I can mix the difference. It's like, if you can hear, then you use critical listening. You understand the music. You understand what it makes it up, and that's how you do your job. It's not just, I only mix rap, so I can't mix country. It's just... Yeah, you, you, you're drawing some serious knowledge from the well here and dishing it out hold on we got to break this down a little bit so number one let me rewind when i said 30 years experience on the road i meant myself and what i was saying was from my 30 years experience on the road you hit the nail on the head because that is the exact scenario i've seen it happen i've watched it happen and i totally understand and it's happened to me as well so i get it with being a guitarist and a music director and same thing if you shine in one area and they really like you then that's going to be what they know you as and that's the age-old thing and i love that you brought up the cliche jack of all trades master of none john powell told me in his episode famous composer he said his dad taught him jack of all trades master of some Mm. So he chose the areas that he really mm. wanted to lean into. And then that's how he gets the ball rolling. And I really like that. And it sounds like you've done something similar. Here's what I want to ask, though, because you said something else in there, too. For the people who might be new to this or who are a little afraid, it's okay to admit that we're afraid. Fear is a real thing. Afraid of taking that leap of that's what we have to do. When the phone wasn't ringing for two, three months at a time. It all starts with networking. You just got to build your network because it's not as much of what you know in this business as it is. It's maybe just as much what you know as who you know, because it's such a small business and we all get our gigs from someone else. It's It all comes from word of mouth, from your reputation, from someone recommending you. And aside from that, it was just planning ahead living within my means, saving my money for an emergency fund if I'm that I can cover my monthly bills if I'm not working for a couple months. Always being financially responsible because this business is volatile. We never know. Whoever would have foresaw the pandemic of the industry shutting down for almost two and a half years. Yeah, that was devastating to many people. And luckily I had an emergency fund, but I never expected it to have to last me two years. So typically an emergency fund is like three to six months, they say. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to, you have to think of your, even though we're creative types, this is, it's still a business. We are a business. We have to operate like a business. That's making those professional connections, networking with people in the business who will get you the jobs. And so those Three months, I'd be sitting home. I'm on the phone and I'm emailing, I'm texting. I'm like, hey, just checking in, let you know I'm available. I'm looking for anything. And you just keep doing that until finally someone's like, yeah, I know somebody who needs a front of house. And just brushing up on my skills, whatever I can do to keep learning and just stay on top of it while I'm waiting for the next gig. I love that. And here's something else that... I'll say scares us. <laughs> I know it scared me plenty of times. Cold outreach, cold emailing, cold calling, cold texting, cold DMing. I don't care which platform you use. Boy, that takes some guts, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. And most people are people are either terrified of it or they're really bad at it. 
I don't know how many people I get on LinkedIn who like want to connect and immediately, as soon as I connect, it's like, hey, here's my song, promote it, get me an agent, get me a job, get me this, give me something. This is not how you network. I'm laughing because um, I, I did that once many years ago when I was young. <laughs> yeah. 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 Networking is, is simple. Like when you, I, 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 I got to be honest, this is probably the, the biggest lesson I learned when people always say, like, what could you have told yourself 30 years ago when you got started? This was the thing that I wish I knew when I first started out in the business because I didn't realize how important it was. And when I got my first major tour with a major label recording artist, I was like, yeah, I'm on the road. I did it. I'm here. And then a year later, that tour ended and everybody I knew was now looking for work because I didn't take the time to, we were doing a festival tour where there was tons of other bands and promoters or production managers, tour managers, people who would eventually be the, responsible for hiring crew. Did I network with them? No, I just stayed out of their way and just did my thing and kept to myself. And a year later, the only people I knew on tour were also looking for work. And most of them don't are never in a position of hiring sound people. So it's kind of like, oh, so I guess I should have been making more connections. So I learned hard and fast that you got to introduce yourself to people. You got to say, hey, I'm so, this is what I do. If you ever need anybody, here's my info. I'd love to stay in touch. But it's not just, hey, what can you do for me? You got to look at it like building a personal relationship. It's having a real conversation with them. It's just, we're all people. So, like, hey, you're, you're a coffee drinker. What's your favorite coffee? You're a wine drinker. What do you like? Are you a foodie? What, what gets you out of bed in the morning? Anything. We all have plenty of stuff we can talk about with each other. And it's that building that personal connection. And that's what makes them remember you too. You're not just, hey, here's my CD. Can you promote me? That's right. Just regular human connection. I love it. Yeah. So what do you do when you're off the road? What keeps you busy? Exactly. Oh, I surf. I ride my bike. I go hiking, whatever. I love the fact that you said you're a metals head by default because that's how I started. And yeah. Coaster too. Where are you again? Which I'm, I'm in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Okay, nice. Yeah. I'm from New York, so that's. I think that's another reason why we hit it off. We have that. Yeah, the northeastern. Yeah, the, the East Coast, eighty-five, <laughs> and the metal and everything. Yeah, that's awesome. Really well said, because that's the truth. So I'm sure people hear me harp on these principles over and over again, but I can't say them enough. And I love it when my guests like yourself, who have the real credits, the real experience, you echo those sentiments, and it just backs it up, makes it even stronger. Yay. Okay. So <laughs> now I want to ask you about something else because going on tour, you hinted at it. A lot of people think, oh, it's the life. It's so awesome. If I get this tour, it's going to be great. I'm going to be set. I made it. Oh, I can't wait to do it. And then they get out there, they get their asses handed to them. They just get their ass kicked day in, day out because they don't realize how strenuous that lifestyle is. What can you tell people who haven't done it, who are dying to do it, who want to do it? What, how should they prepare for this? So being on tour, when you get your first gig, there I call it, call it the big threes. The th three things you want to remember, show up, shut up, and do the job. Show up with, it starts with being on time. 
whether you're a crew person or a band member, be on time. And on time means if you're on time, like if call is 9 a.m. and you're there at 9 a.m., you're late. You got to be there 10, 15 minutes early. No one should ever have to wait on your ass because that is a sure sign, especially like you're, say you're a hired guitar player and you're backing up Celine Dion. Call time is 9 a.m. and she's down there at 9 and you show up at 9.02. You never show up later than the person you're working for. I call um, it the, the 30 before rule. I'm there at 8.30. Yeah. So it starts with being on time. And then if someone gives you a gig, if, like, if someone says, hey, man, I know this person who's looking for a guitar player on tour, blah, 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 whatever, take it. Or even if it's just a one-off, show up and do the job. Opportunities in this business are not as common as people like to think. Mm -hmm. And when you start dismissing them or you take them for granted, then they stop coming to you altogether. So it's really important if someone gives you an opportunity that you, you take it, you show up, you don't cancel, you don't make excuses, you take that opportunity. And then the second part is shut up. This means not being high maintenance. Don't be the new guy or girl on the tour bus or in the band that is talking nonstop and just drama and telling everyone how much they think they know and dropping names here and there. Because anybody who's been in the business for a serious amount of time can spot bullshit a mile away. And that's the first rule of just, if you want to live with other people, which when you're on the road, you're living in a very confined space with a lot of other people, you got to be easy to live with. And people just don't need to hear your resume day in, day out, all the things that you've done, how wonderful you are. It's like, look, you got the gig, so shut up and do it and stop talking all over everybody else. And then the other, thing, the other part it. of that is just don't make demands and be high maintenance and causing extra work for other people just because you think you can. I toured with a girl and this was back in, God, like the late 90s where vegan was not a common word yet and she was vegan by uh, uh for health reasons not by choice and she came out on tour and she had her own food like she would stock the bus with food that she could eat because she just knew when we get to the midwest they think vegan means oh here's tuna fish or there's cheese if you need protein like Rather than her have to be the pain in the ass that like, look, I can't eat anything in catering today. She would make sure she had food on the bus. And granted, we shouldn't have to do that, but she knew, look, I don't want to be high maintenance. I don't want to be causing problems. So it's that kind of thing. It's making sure that you can take care of yourself and you're not expecting everyone to take care of you. Because the minute you start causing drama, you become high maintenance. Unless you're part of the band, and I mean like the band, not a hired gun, someone's going to be yeah. looking to replace you. Yeah, unless you're Joe Perry, then you can do whatever you want. But other than that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and it's funny because like the biggest thing is I've seen, I've seen more people lose their gig because of personality issues, alcohol or drug abuse problems drama rather than because they couldn't do the gig 
I've known plenty of people in this business, musicians and crew alike, who are not the greatest at their gig. Like they might be okay, they can do the job, but there's people who are far better qualified than they are. But they are great people and they're they're invisible. Like they don't cause problems. They show up, they do the job, they get out of the way. And they're fun to be around. Like I know one guitar tech who he's worked with just huge guitar players for years. And all he can do is tune a guitar and change strings. He can't fix anything when it breaks. He doesn't know how to troubleshoot. He's not a great technician, but he can get the job done. And the guitar players love him because he makes them laugh and he makes life on the road be that much more enjoyable. And he has a gig. Yeah, he'll be he'll have a gig for life because everyone loves working with them. But then I've worked with people who were amazing at their job and just so negative and toxic and miserable that no one wanted to be around them. So they didn't last. It's like the first chance they the management had, they were replaced. So you want to shut up, just do your job, have fun, but don't be that person that everybody's like, oh, God, here they come. And that annoys everybody. Absolutely. Yeah. And like the third part of that is actually do the job. You want to treat every gig like it's your dream gig. If you're playing a little tiny club gig uh, or Madison Square Garden, you want to play them both the same. You want to give them both the same amount of effort and enthusiasm. You never know who's going to walk through that door. You could be just playing some little dive bar gig. It might be like a record company schmooze party or something like that. And you're just phoning it in and in walks like David Foster or Simon Cowell or whatever. And now you're like, oh, I wish I would have practiced a little bit better or been playing my A game. I didn't know they were in the audience. So if you did that, that's big failure. You want to treat every gig like it's the most important gig of your life because it is. It's like to somebody in that audience an important gig to them. So they deserve to get the same performance from everybody, crew, band alike, as the people who come to see you at Madison Square Garden. So every gig is important. That's right. As big a fan as I am of Van Halen, that was my first model, (laughs) Eddie, you know, the legend. I try to put myself in those shoes. So if I was going to see a Van Halen show, how would I feel? How yeah. did I feel when I went to see Van Halen? I was like, oh my gosh, I couldn't believe. So I try to embody that same emotion, right? When mm-hmm. I'm on stage performing, because I know there's other people out there who paid to see their idol, their their favorite band, their favorite artist on the stage that you're performing or in the house speakers that you're mixing. Imagine mm-hmm. if you, if you screwed up the mix, oh my God, you would have so many angry fans at you. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. all they're going to talk about is, man, the mix sounded terrible. Yep. <laughs> so now that we've covered the the psychological aspect of being on the road and how to prep yourself emotionally and what to expect and how to conduct yourself, let's talk about the actual physical aspects. I am a self-proclaimed bag nut. I have, my wife always yells, I probably have 30, 40 different bags, like little travel bags, little on your person bags, wheeler bags, roller bags, big ones, small ones, medium ones. It's just, I just geek out about it. I love, anytime we go to the store, I go to the bag section, the luggage section. And I have a very particular way of how I pack particular way. So tell us about some of your little quirks or even protocols that you adhere to. So that way you never get stuck and be like, oh man, I can't believe I forgot. A, a good bag 
is essential. Like roll wheels, wheels, everything has to have wheels. I made the mistake of one of my first tours. I had this great Eddie Bauer duffel, but it didn't have any wheels. And then I'm in, in Europe and having to carry this thing up three or four flights of stairs, every hotel, it was just like, oh my God. Or you're, you, you got to re- remember that you're responsible for your own luggage. So whatever you take on tour, you're the one that's going to be carrying it around. Don't be expecting the tour manager or the tour assistant or anyone else to be carting it around, getting it to your hotel room. That happens on like the biggest level. And not even then, it's only sometimes for the pop star or whoever the main person in the band is. So just pack what you can manage yourself. I see that as a, that's a big mistake a lot of people make on their fir- first tour. They have two or three big suitcases full of stuff. And so, yeah, you're going to have to get that out of the bus every day into the hotel on your own. And that gets really exhausting after a while. And you so, might only have 30, 40 minutes at the hotel sometimes. Yeah. It depends on when you get there, things get delayed, flights get delayed, canceled. You never know. Yeah. So like one good size bag with wheels and you get what you pay for with luggage. If you're just going on a small tour, a short tour, that's fine. But like when you start touring regularly, you want to invest in some high quality luggage like Toomey or Briggs and Riley or Samsonite, something that is built to last because it's just going to get hammered. But the thing to remember is that like, what I try and do is pack for enough clothes to get me through about nine or 10 days because there's always laundry. At Either at the venue, you can send your laundry out with a runner. What we normally do is a runner will take it to a fluff and fold. So, you know, it goes out and comes back the same day and you just pay them or you can do it on your days off. But there's always going to be some way to do laundry. So you don't have to pack six months of clothing for a six month tour. Just pack enough to get you through a week or two whatever you're comfortable with. For me, like I tend to start packing about two weeks before I'm leaving because I will end up repacking like four or five times. I'll start with, okay, here's all the stuff I think I'm going to need. And then I was like, okay, that's too much. Like my bag's overweight. So I got to start weeding stuff out. And that's just like my it's nesting, I guess the opposite of nesting because I'm going away, but it's just my little ritual. But I'll have my main suitcase. And then what I'll have is a bunk bag, like a small bag, like a small duffel or something that I can throw in the bunk. And because for the crew, the band usually gets hotels every day. The crew, we usually only get hotels on days off. If we have three, three shows in a row, we wake up at the venue. At the end of the night, we get back on the bus, wake up at the next venue. We're not going to a hotel every single night unless they're really short drives. So we're We're going to be showering at the venue or at a hotel room. So in that, my bunk bag, I'll have like my change of clothes, my pajamas, toiletries, whatever I need to just run in and take a quick shower and get changed. And then everything else is in my bag that's in the bay of the bus. But um, yeah, it's just remembering that you're going to be responsible for it. So make sure you can pack only what you can carry. And uh, if you have, if you're touring in the U.S., like travel size stuff is great. Your toiletries, all that travel size stuff is great. You can usually replace it somewhere down the road on a day off. You'll be able to get to a CVS or Rite Aid or whatever, get what you need. When you're touring overseas, it's a little bit different. Like if you're really particular about your shampoo or some product that you use, you may want to make sure you have enough to get through that tour because it can be harder to find it in other countries. But the, that's the, the one 
cool thing about touring is you find out how little you can actually survive with. How much of your daily life that you really don't need to survive? It's just what are those essentials that I have to have with me? So true. Minimalism. In fact, I love going on tour for that reason, because I really do try to scale it back and live in that minimalistic kind of manner. I'm even doing that in my studio now because I just moved studios. And now there's a downfall. I was looking for something earlier today and I was like, man, where is it? It's (laughs) away somewhere. But anyway, (laughs) I want to add to that. These are, oh man, these are such great tips. So if anybody's getting ready to go out on tour or if that's what you aspire to do, really take notes on this. It's so important. I want to add, always bring shower shoes. You never know which shower you're going to be in. Sometimes the venues don't have the greatest locker rooms. And typically you're showering in locker rooms where sports teams perform, sports teams play. So sometimes you get a really high-end venue and it's pristine. Sometimes it's a building that was built in 1950 and it hasn't been kept up. (laughs) Yeah, or even worse, yeah. If you you were with a a smaller band that's playing clubs, I mean, that you're going to be showering in some of the most disgusting places you would ever imagine. <laughs> so shower shoes and the thicker, the better. I mean, even truck stops. Yeah. I'll just get off on the first stop and get cleaned up. Yeah. Man, this is fantastic. Something else that I love how you said you have a little portable bag that you can always keep with you in your bunk or even by the front of the house or wherever. You just have little bags that you know, oh, I can, I can run with this, right? Mm-hmm. So many times I know you could relate. I've had to run through the airport to catch my flight, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You have a ridiculous amount of luggage that you cannot really handle. You're screwing yourself. Yep. Awesome. Awesome. Oh, man. All this road talk is making me miss the road. I haven't been on the road since 2019, October 2019. So I guess about three years for me. Yeah. Wow. Speaking of which, so tell us a little bit about your tour life. What are some of the bands and artists you've been working with? When was the last time you've been out on tour or when are you going out again? Yeah, so right now I've been working with a a band called Ghost Hounds since May and we spent the summer opening for the Rolling Stones in Europe. And uh, so I've been home for about a month now. We got back in the beginning, like the second week or so of August, so a little over a month. Yeah. And they're recording a new record. We have a little bit of downtime here. But prior to that, I've been working with Elvis Costello, Melissa Etheridge, Gwen Stefani, Mr. Big, Styx, Goo Goo Dolls, Kesha. No, nobody but that anybody really knows, right? Not yeah. Like- you might have to look them up a little. <laughs> so hold but on. yeah. Hold on. I got to know this. So tell us about the experience being on tour with the Rolling Stones camp, okay? That because you're talking about when bands of that size and that stature in the legendary status, when they go out, it's actually like a city. It's a traveling city. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Just give us some details on that. Yeah. So here's a little like full circle moment. So my very first tour I did was in 1992 with the band Spin Doctors. And it was perfect timing because I I started with them and a month later their first record just blew up so it was like we were all growing together and experiencing this excitement about them having huge hits and just flying up the charts and 
And I worked for them from like 92 till around 97 on and off. But in 94, we opened for the Rolling Stones on their Voodoo Lounge Tour. And we did South America, the US and Canada. And it was all NFL football stadiums. And so then here I started working with Ghost Towns in May. And it was like, oh, we're going to go open for the Rolling Stones. I'm like, wow, life does come full circle. (laughs) That's awesome. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, it's funny that hit, what's the hit song that the Spin Doctors had? That huge. Uh, the Two Princes. Two Princes. Mm-hmm. I played that song from the time it came out, probably for five years consecutively, almost every night in the club <laughs> circuit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they still played on the radio here in Northeast PA. Yeah. Time yeah, that's a great tune. Great. It track. is, yeah. Um, yeah. The logistics of, uh, again, of a company, I think <laughs> when I say company, I a whole team, like a city. The logistics of that, how many trucks are there on a Rolling Stones tour typically? Yeah, I, I, we, so they were doing stadiums, 80,000, 50 to 80,000 soccer stadiums in Europe. So it's, I don't know how many trucks exactly. I'm going to guess probably around 40 because their stage, their set was enormous. It, like actually there was no set. It was just the, the stage was this proscenium stage and it just stretched across the entire stadium and it was really high and just huge video walls yeah it was like and then delay towers so it's a monstrous production a crew of well over 100 people and their load-ins usually were a day or two before the show right to build everything and what for us what we would do would we would get there the night before the show dump our gear off the trucks and then just wait for them to be ready for us to start building on stage and set up front of house and monitors, our front of house and monitors. And then we would come back the next morning and then we would do our sound check and then have to strike everything from the stage for the stones to sound check and then come back after their sound check and reset our stage for the show. So it was a bit of a dance <laughs> i was just gonna ask you how you guys did the time slots because that way is the really hard way and sometimes yeah. they allow them for you guys to go last so that the artist sound checks first and then you guys come in after that and then you put you set up your rig you sound check and you leave it wow talk yeah. like an enormous amount of work how so how does one such as yourself front of house you're high up on the totem pole in the crew. You're, it's you and the production manager who are basically in charge, right? It's the tour manager and production manager. Yeah. But you're right there. You- I, it's, there's a hierarchy in the way of if there's an issue, the hierarchy of how you follow protocol. But to me, I never look at it like I'm above anybody else on the tour. We all have a critical role to do. If something happened to the LD, okay, we have a problem. If something happened to the drum tech, we've got a problem. It's not like there's multiple p- people there to cover roles. So each person on a crew, it's a vital position. And there's the hierarchy 
oh yeah, the band techs, they always come in last, the last ones in first to leave. But everybody's job is important. So I don't like to think of it as I'm more important than you or anybody else. I so agree on all the tours that I've been on. The best crews are the ones that work as one, yeah. one symbiotic unit. And yeah. same thing with the bands. It's the same exact thing. When I was the music director, I tried not to act like, oh, I'm Mr. No, man, you were mm -hmm. all together. We're all in this. Okay. Just again, I, I'm just trying to get into the nitty gritty. So give us an idea of when you'd roll into the city the night before. And then you say you would put all your stuff on deck, but you couldn't set it up until the next morning. Oh, so, yeah. So we would come in. We usually fly, like we were flying back and forth a lot. So what happened was we had three dates scheduled in the beginning of June. Uh, it was supposed to be Amsterdam, Bern, Switzerland, and Milan, Italy. And so we flew over two days before Amsterdam, before the show. The night before the show, we went over, we loaded in our stuff, we set up, came back the next morning, did our sound check. Then the stone sound checked and then they opened the doors and after doors were open for about 45 minutes, they called the show because Mick Jagger had COVID. So we had it load out and then we sat for the next five days because they had to cancel, postpone burn. And then we did Milan. So same thing. Like we showed up the night before, set up our stuff, came in the next morning, sound check, struck everything and then reset and flew home and then flew back two weeks later to make up the show in Amsterdam came home, flew back again to make up the show from Bern. So it was just back and forth and back and forth for about six weeks. And yeah, we would get in the night before, like we would fly over either two days before the show. And then the night before we'd go, just we'd be, it's a lot of hurry up and wait, just stand by, wait for them to say, okay, go set the stage. And then we'd set the stage and then come back the next morning. We had a slot between 10 a.m. till 12, 12.30 for us to do a line check, get the band up, sound check, and get off. And then the stones would come. So it's just be prepared to stand by. I always say, have a good book ready. Yes. Uh, by the way, this is my <laughs> book, Ethos. I got to get you a copy, which reminds me. Yeah. Um, but always definitely have some good reading material. Have your podcasts ready to listen to. Mm -hmm. Have all this stuff because it's right. It's a game of hurry up and wait. Yeah. So now, oh, by the way, real quick, explain to people who might not know the difference between a sound check and a line check. Okay, so basically, line check is once the crew has everything on stage, set up, mic'd and wired, and everything's in place, we run through a line check with the crew, preferably without the band. We want to make sure before the band shows up for sound check that everything is working. Everything is patched where it's supposed to be. My kick drum is showing up in the kick drum channel and my vocal is working. And line check is serves a couple purposes. It's first to make sure everything is wired correctly. There's no buzzes. There's no bad cables or bad mics. And also, you start if you're starting from scratch, which most people aren't anymore, but you're just dialing in your sounds and setting levels so that when the band walks on stage for sound check, they're in a pretty good place. It's like, yep, yeah, let's just play. And that's where you make your little fine tune to adjust for people's monitor levels and for the house and whatever you need to do. As a band member, 
I can honestly say that when Michelle says the crew prefers the band not to be there for line check, there's a reason. Because what happens to a musician when they get their instrument in their hand? They just noodle. They can't mm -hmm. stop playing. They just always want to play. Yeah. And while the crew is trying to communicate from the deck all the way to the front of house and over to monitors and back on the wings and wherever else, it's really difficult if the whole band is just noodling. It's sheer audio cacophony and nobody can focus and get anything done so it's funny because as the music director i used to work closely with the front of house and production manager and tour manager and be like hey you let me know when you want that we will not touch the stage we won't go near the stage until you give us the green light so very important right yeah exactly it's and that's the other thing is too it's if you, the band would just stay away for that whatever 15 20 minutes with the crew would be ready for them much faster than it when they're on stage it slows things down and the drummer gets up there starts hitting the drums this doesn't sound right we're not ready for you yet so if you just walk away for five minutes come back when we're ready it'll be fine so they that's go into the back of the kitchen while the chef is still preparing the food yeah, exactly that doesn't taste i'm not done yet yeah <laughs> exactly i love it i love it all right hey i want to wrap up the touring section with this last question with the uh, what do you call it? the dr evil laugh <laughs> how do you negotiate rates and i know for myself there's obviously different scenarios and every scenario can be different literally all the particulars involved and there's people that you've worked with before and people new people that you've never worked with there's people that have great management in place there's other people that has not so great management or no management in place so tell us about that from your experience yeah and that's a great question for from the crew perspective i'm not sure how it works for musicians but from the crew perspective generally all get hired by a production manager or a tour manager even if management directly calls me and is like, hey, we want you to, to mix our band, they're going to have the tour manager or accountant is going to be the person who does the deal with me. And at that point, there's already a line item with a budget. They've got a budget that says, this is what we're paying for front of house. This is what we're paying for drum tech. This is what we're paying for the lighting director. So they'll tell me, now first, let me back up a little bit. Sometimes people will say, hey, are you available? What's your rate? I always try to get them to offer a number before I give them my rate. Yes, that's the key. Try to get yeah. them to speak first, right? Yeah, and it can be hard. So I'll just shoot back, what's the job paying? And I have a range in my head of what's the bottom line I'll go out the door for and what do I normally get? What would I love to get? So I have that range. And if they come back with, we're paying this and it's, $500 below my bottom number, then I'll politely say, yeah, that's a bit less than what I'm used to. This is my normal rate. And I give them the opportunity to say, well, okay, well, we can do this or negotiate. But the other the thing you don't want to do is price, uh, price yourself out of a job or underbid yourself. If they're willing to pay $1,000 a week more than what you're used to. And you say, well, I make this much. And they're like, we just got a bargain. So always try to get them to offer the number first. And then you go from there. And usually nine times out of 10, they've got a budget in mind of what they can afford. If 
you have a resume, if you're well known, if you have a great reputation and credibility and the number's low, you can sometimes negotiate for a higher rate if they want you bad enough. But if you're just trying to break, get your foot in the door and break into touring, get a gig that you desperately want, you might have to settle for a little bit less than what you would like. And that was my first tour. I had no idea what to ask for. And I was just prepared. Like I asked the guy who I was like, was a friend of mine who had the gig and he was giving it to me so he could get off the road. And I'm like, what do I ask? He's like, I'm not going to tell you what I'm making. You could probably get this much. I'm like, okay. So I call up management. And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, look, it's paying this much. And I'm, it was $200 less than what I was going to ask for. And I was just like, okay. It was my first tour. I'm like, of course, I'm going to take it because I want to get on tour. And once I do, six weeks later, when the band loved me and I knew that I had the gig and I called management and said, okay, they love me. I want more money. Not quite that directly, but I renegotiated and I got a raise. So you can, if it's a gig that you really want and it's not quite the money that you want, it's up to you. Like I've taken gigs. I went out for significantly less than what my normal rate is just because I knew the artist was amazing to work for. I knew everybody on the crew. I knew I was going to have a blast and it was going to be an easy gig. So to me, the quality of life I was going to have made up for the difference in salary. And I've taken gigs where working for bands that didn't have near the budget to pay me what I normally make, but because I loved the music and I wanted to mix them, where I turned down tours that were going to pay me three times that, but it was music that I couldn't stand. So it depends. It's not always about the money. You got to look at what's the quality of life. Is it going to be a gig that I'm going to love? Is it going to give me an opportunity that I desperately need? All of that kind of weighs in. But usually there's already a number that they're kind of have in mind. So try and get them to throw that out first. I love that. I love that. Okay, it's so funny that brought up that brought to mind a tour that I did a big tour years ago. And the first run went well throughout the summer. And they called me back for the next summer. And I said, Yeah, what's the pay bump? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And they said, Oh, it's, I think it was like, I think it was literally 200 or 250 bucks. I said, Oh, you mean in per diem? Great. So what's the salary (laughs) pay bump? (laughs) And he's like, Man, we love you, but we don't love you that much. I was like, it's okay. I really want to stay in town and pursue session work. Thank you so much for calling me back, but I'm going to pass. And then, so again, talking about that sacrifice, right? To you really want to focus on what you want to do. And then a buddy of mine ended up getting the gig. And man, he, he stuck with that gig for, I want to say, probably almost a good 10 years. And he made a lot of money from those tours. It's always interesting. Sometimes you're going to pass and you Mm -hmm. might be like, dang, why did I do that? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's great advice. Thank you so much. Touring is done. Now (laughs) we're going to talk about the job that you actually do. You actually mix sound for a living. Hold on. First of all, that's crazy. Sound is one of the most intangible intangibles that the human, (laughs) that humans know of. How do you even quantify what you do? Do you even have a job, Michelle? <laughs> I, you know what? For as long as I've been doing this, I've never even thought of it as work because I love what I do so much that I can't even call it work. 
that. I love that. That's the best. I'm joking around, obviously. But the reason why I ask is because so many people fail to recognize how much of an exact science uh, audio engineering actually entails, right? First of all, the way we look at it from the biz, there's typically two mediums. There's live sound and studio sound. Which do you prefer or do you prefer both and, you know, why? I definitely prefer live. For me, it's the instant gratification or defeat. It's that like you got one chance to get it right. The show's tonight. You can't mix it for the next week. You mix it today and it's either going to be great or it's not. So I like that pressure. Although in the studio, you have a level of control that you never have in live as far as the environment, uh, room acoustics and things like that. That in itself is very gratifying to just have complete control of how something is going to sound versus fighting a room and fighting stage volume and audience noise and all of that. But the majority of what I do is live. And that's, I love the energy of a live performance. I, I just, to me, it's all about the feel. It's all about the music. It's, it's not the gear. It's not having all the fanciest toys. It's being part of that when you go to a great show and you can feel that energy in the room, it's like just being part of that every night is that's the best way to make a living. Wow. So that was the reason why you got into it. It just really spoke to you. Yeah. And I love, you know, I started out originally wanted to be a recording engineer. It never occurred to me that live sound was a career option. Even though I'd grown up going to concerts, I never thought, I just didn't pay attention to the person that was doing sound. I just figured they worked for the room the building or something. Never even thought that you could make a living doing that until I went to school. I was in audio school and I had a live sound course. I'm like, wait, I can get paid to do this and travel the world? Like, hell yeah. Yeah, see, that's so. exactly what I'm talking about. There's so many people who are not musically inclined or not musicians or not technicians in any way who really have no clue what a sound engineer does. So again, that's why we're highlighting this. Okay, so now that you had your passion, you pursued it, you learned about the difference between live and recording, and then you wholeheartedly pursue live audio. What are some of the things that you learned along the way that you've been doing that could potentially help others as they pursue audio as well? The biggest thing is to really get a good, solid understanding of the fundamentals. Things like signal flow, gain structure, how to choose a microphone, how to proper placement of a microphone, how to use EQ dynamics, things like that. Like you, those are the things that no matter what you're doing in your career, you're always going to fall back on. It's not about learning the gear. Like I see so many people getting into audio and music production and they're so focused on, I got to learn, I got to get all the latest, hottest gear, the newest plugins. I got to learn how to use all these tools, but they don't understand the fundamentals of what they're doing. And the thing is, here's the big secret that most people don't realize is that it's not the gear that creates a great mix. It's knowing how to use it and how to use it correctly. Sorry, could you say that again, please? I need people <laughs> to listen. <laughs> it's not the gear that creates a great mix. It's knowing how to use it and how to use it correctly. I've seen on tour, I'll have the opening act will we'll show up and they'll have the latest rack full of plugins on the market. They'll have a, comp a computer using, we have this program called SMART, which analyzes 
the room sound, the acoustics and the PA and just all these fancy tools. And I've got my desk, I've got my soundboard and that's it. I'm I'm not using plugins. I'm not using computers to tell me how it sounds. I'm using my ears and I'm using the tools that I know. And they're staring at a computer screen to tell them how bad it sounds in this arena because there's like a five second decay time. And I'm like, you don't have to have a computer tell you that. Just stand here and talk and listen. So they'll struggle all night because they're just staring at a computer, playing with all these gadgets instead of paying attention to the show. And their mix is flat. They're missing cues because there's a guitar solo, but they're they're too busy playing with their plugins. And it's just, they're struggling because they're not really getting it. It's music. It's a creative, it's a living thing. It's not in a computer. And I, to me, that's what I see mostly these days is people forget that because we have so much technology available to us to create music and to do all these amazing things. People often forget that music is alive. It's not a bunch of computer programs. We can create it with a computer, but you still need that human element. And that's where you get that feel and that energy. So yeah, it's then the other side of that is they learn one soundboard, like they'll learn the Avid console because they're a Pro Tools fan and Avid is very conducive to Pro Tools. But then when they're faced with a different mixing console, they have no idea what to do because they don't understand signal flow. They just know where every button and knob is on that console. But now they're in front of a Yamaha and they're like, I don't know how to use this thing. Well, it's signal flow, gain, EQ, dynamics, busing, and they've never learned those concepts. So that's where they struggle. It's they're going around backwards rather than learning the fundamentals. They're trying to learn the gear. But when you know the fundamentals, it makes learning the gear that much easier. So let's take this concept of what you said, the fundamentals, signal flow, gain, dynamics, and so forth, busing, and then all all the modulation effects and all the different (laughs) types of effects. Taking that same concept and applying it to what we're trying to accomplish in our home studios now. So I always Mm -hmm. say that the term remote work became such a big trend when the pandemic hit, but I've been remote working since the 90s. Yeah. Again, principles remain the same, even though the methods change, right? So how do we take the same principle of understanding how the signal flows and the gain structure and the dynamics and bussing it out to get the different effects and apply that to our home studio knowledge? I have a Mac, a laptop. I have, let's just say the typical person and they have a MIDI controller and they have some plugins. They're using Logic or Pro Tools or Ableton. doesn't matter. Where do they start? Once they plug all that stuff in, they have a little interface, a Scarlet or a UA and a decent microphone. Now what? Yeah. Oh, you, it's like setting up this whole amazing rocket science lab and then not knowing the first thing about rocket science. And it's funny because the question I get, I get asked most often from people working in live sound and from musicians that are recording in studios is, what gear do I need? What plugin should I buy? And that's the wrong question. It's, it should be, what they should be asking is, what do I need to know about recording high quality audio or getting professional quality mixes? Because quite honestly, like you said, with the bare minimum, just a laptop 
and a DAW and some sort of interface and a decent set of, of monitoring speakers. And if you can't afford that, even just a good set of studio headphones that are over the ear, something that you can listen on and get a good quality audio from, you know, just a couple solid basic microphones. That's all you need. You don't need a $3,000 Neumann, but you shouldn't also be buying the cheapest mic on Sweetwater. Get something from a a reputable professional manufacturer like Shure or Sennheiser or something like that. But you don't have to spend a fortune. And start with that. Start with learning how to get good signal recorded into your dog. Experiment with mic placement, whether you're just a singer or you're recording your guitar. Just take that microphone and record your voice, record your guitar, practice getting, figuring out what, you know, the best mic placement is for what you're trying to record and hearing how, if I'm singing when the mic is right here versus here, what's, how does that sound different? If I have a mic on the neck of my guitar versus the sound hole, how does that sound different? Use your ears and start training your ears to hear what you're actually recording so that you can record things to sound the way you want them to. Instead of just throwing a mic up. Yeah, I always say because nowadays everything is visual. So with the transients of the waveforms going up and down, and we're looking at that and we're programmed to fix on the screen to get all of our information Like you said, sometimes we forget to listen. Yeah. So I love that. So you're saying get set up, record something, close your eyes, and then listen to it. Play it back and listen and yeah. then analyze it. Yeah. And then, oh, I, I put the... I put the mic on the neck of the guitar, but it's a little too thin. So maybe, oh, it's a little bit more, it's a little too boomy on the, the sound hole. Maybe I need to find somewhere in between, or maybe I need two mics and I can combine them. Just start to, to list, learn what you're hearing, listen to what you're hearing. But also you really need to know how to get good quality signal into your DAW. You, you need to know how to set your gain structure correctly, because that's where it all starts. It's, I always say it's great sound starts at the source. So you've got to have good quality instruments or whatever that you're recording. It needs to sound good before you mic it. But then once you start recording, you want to have optimal gain gain structure going on because it just rolls downhill from there. So if you have too low of a signal level recorded into your DAW, then you start trying to compensate from that to bring that up elsewhere. And that does not always give you the best sound can start to sound unnatural. And then if your signal level is too high, you create distortion, which is never good in, in a mix. You know that even at low levels, I think people don't realize this because I hear so much distortion on the music that's out these days and it's unlistenable. I have an artist who, this is going back about 10, 15 years ago, saw them perform live, was blown away, never heard of them, went home, immediately downloaded their record. And I was just like, I can't listen to this. It's just, there's so much distortion on the vocal that I can't listen. And I don't know if it was something that they were going for an effect of how powerful the vocalist is by adding this distortion, or if it was just the band's first record, they recorded themselves, but then the second album came out and it was just as bad. And I'm like, it sucks because I love this artist, but I can't listen to their recordings because, and it's not loud distortion. It's just, it's there. And it causes ear fatigue. And I think people don't realize that when there is distortion, even if it's barely perceptible, it causes ear fatigue. So it, it could be the difference of, yeah, I like that song, but I don't want to hear it again. 
So let's talk about, explain further into that, the difference between digital or even analog clipping <clears throat> and distorting versus intentional distortion, like on a heavy metal guitar or a rock solo, mm -hmm. whatever, in any capacity. Explain the difference there. <clears throat> yeah. Distortion as an effect is fine. When you're intentionally adding that to your guitar, even on a vocal, sometimes you'll add it as an effect. But analog distortion, actually analog distortion was far less common because analog gear, you, you, it had a tendency, you ran it hotter, like you ran your signal levels hotter, you drove the signal hot higher because it created this harmonic distortion, which was very pleasing to the ear. And it wasn't perceived as like that kind of distortion. It just gave it this warmth and this fatness, yeah, yeah. and which is the difference of the analog days versus the new, everything is digital straight into a DAW, bypassing any kind of outboard analog preamps. But digital distortion, it's a completely different animal. It can ruin your mix. And it is, um, it does not provide that same harmonic warmth. It is noise. It is an, an underlying kind of just noise that is there and you hear it and it sounds terrible. Okay. That's perfect. That's perfect. So now you figured out how to gain stage. You, you have a guitar and a microphone and you got the perfect input signal into your interface, which then goes into your DAW and everything's nice and clean there. And then you start performing, you're playing and you feel good about it. You, you ignore the computer while you're doing your performance, you record it. You come back, you listen, in the middle of the song, in the bridge, in the chorus, at the high part where it climaxes the, and gets to its loudest peak, you start to hear distortion. You're like, wait a minute, what happened? How do you compensate for that? Because you're like, if I go any lower with my input signal, the beginning of the song that's really dynamically tender and quiet and intimate is going to be too low, and then I can't get, how do I balance the two? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So that is an, a perfect place for some compression. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72 and other sought after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica report. And you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Now, your compression, <laughs> that is the biggest enigma in the world to me when we talk about audio. I want to preface this with compression is possibly the worst, the most overused and misused tool in mixing. Yes. And right now it is just, it's all the rage. Like it's parallel compression, it's bus compression, it's three la layers deep of compression. That was the easiest way to kill your mix. I see so many people who immediately reach for compression before anything else, and that's the wrong way to go about it. A compressor, basically, what it does, 
is it just minimizes the volume change between the highest and quiet, loudest and quietest parts of the signal. It just makes that a little bit smaller. So you don't have this wildly dynamic signal. And it's great on things like a dynamic vocalist who goes from a whisper to a scream or a bass player who get, plays real soft and gets real slappy. Drummers who go from really light to really hard hitting, because what a compressor will do is prevent that clipping and that distortion. So you set it so that it's with the, the thing about a compressor is it works by a ratio. So for a typical four to one ratio, for every one dB, every four dB of signal in, you get one dB out. So it's just bringing down those really loud parts to match those quieter parts. So it's a more, it's smoothing out the signal. It's more even. That's the perfect explanation I've heard of compression. I, I've been studying this for years, obviously, and that was a really nice way of explaining how the ratios work and what it does. Yeah, and, and creative, com compression can also be used very creatively. It can add impact to a mix. It can add, I think a lot of people tend to grab the compressor to create loudness because when you squash everything so that the signal is just consistent then you can just turn up your makeup gain and make it louder without things popping out but that will also make your mix a bit lifeless and just flat because there is no dynamic now and that was a tool back in the days of radio where engineers would compress the shit out of a mix so that it would sound and they would crank up the output gain so it would sound louder on the radio but now it's just hung on and it's way overused because like i said it just takes the life out of a mix the thing with compression is so it's great if you're recording say you're you're recording a vocalist and they go from a really quiet to a scream a really powerful voice that's a great place to put some compression in the chain as you're recording so that you can get a little bit smoother signal you don't want to squash it but you just want to make sure you're not clipping right. um, a lot of times people will use compression for things that they should be using EQ for. That's the, to add impact, to add punch, to get more energy out of their mix. And that's where EQ can do so much for a mix. And that is like the one, to me, like EQ is my favorite tool. You can really shape and sculpt your mix. Like I, I, use, I use very little compression. When I'm mixing, it's literally just to smooth out any signals that are, if I have something that's jumping wildly in level, so I'm not clipping, I might do a little bit of bus compression, but very lightly just to um, my drums to just pull them together, not to add impact. Like I do that with EQ. I'll add punch and all of that to, to the drums with EQ. I was just going to ask you, how important is it to really know the EQ spectrum? For anyone working... In, in music production or audio, musician, producer, songwriter, engineer, EQ is frequency. And frequencies, this is probably the most important thing you could learn if you have a career in music and audio, because we work with sound and music, music is sound and sound is made up of frequencies. Then it's, it's the pitch. It's like the middle A on a piano is 440 hertz. That's the frequency of 440 hertz. So that's, I think people hear frequencies and EQ and they get, oh my God, that's way too technical. I don't understand any of that. And it's really not as complicated as it sounds, but it is so important because say you're writing and arranging a song, you choose the instruments for that song and you, and 
the tones. And while you're thinking of all that, you need to be considering what instruments are playing in what frequency range and where things are sitting so that they're not competing with each other. And this is the key to making a song or recording sound more professional versus amateur. The best composers and arrangers, songwriters and producers, they understand that they need to leave space in a mix. They need to leave space. Oh, so sorry to interrupt. That's the key. That's the whole purpose of this course, pro-level sessions from home, because it's that is the difference between the amateur work and the professional work. Yeah. Knowing those little nuances. And I'm so glad you brought up space. I'm sorry. Continue. Well, yeah, no, that's, they understand that everything falls in a certain frequency spectrum. And a lot of instruments can overlap. If you've got two or three guitar players and they're all playing in the same frequency range or their tones are all very similar, it's going to be very hard to create definition between them in the mix. So by, just bumping one into a little bit a different frequency range or changing the tone of their sound that creates space and you want to focus on having space for each component of the mix every instrument every vocal because when you do that's the difference between a song sounding small and like a demo versus sounding huge and like a hit and what yeah. I love that. I so love that. What is the frequency range from lowest to higher in that the human he- ear can detect? And what range do we typically use for modern day music? Humans with good hearing, <laughs> who still have their hearing, can usually detect between 20 hertz on the, lo- on the low frequency to about 20,000 hertz on the high. And just for some reference, like... I think the low E of a bass guitar is about 40 hertz. Right. So the low note on the bass guitar, that's 40. The lows, that's your sub frequencies, like the kick drum, the bass guitar, those instruments. Highs are your cymbals and, and like the air in the mix where you have that kind of crystal shimmer at the top. And then there's everything in between. So when you're in a musician in a band and you're dialing in your tone, Say you're a drummer. And this is the one thing. When I worked with Mr. Big, Pat Torpy, who to this day is still my all-time favorite drummer. He was the first drummer that I worked with who really got it. Here you've got these two guitar virtuosos who are just wailing away, playing a million notes, shredding. And you've got the singer who's got this huge, beautiful voice that's so rich. And here's the drummer who's like, all right, how am I going to fit into all this? Because I need to be heard and I don't want to be competing with everything else that's going on. So he, his kit just sat so perfectly in the mix. His snare drum had its own space. It didn't compete with the voice. And we often know that snare drums and vocals are all competing for that same space. And I hate to tell drummers out there, but you're going to lose. When it comes down to hearing the lead vocal or your snare, you always lose. You're going to hear the so, vocal. That's right. You want, that's so, what you want here. Yeah. So Pat's snare, the tone of his snare drum and where it was tuned, just, and they were big on four-part harmony. So there's this rich, huge vocal sound, but his snare drum just sat right perfectly where it didn't compete with any of that. Same thing with his cymbals. The cymbals weren't real harsh and crisp. They, it wasn't like a whitewash of noise over the vocals. They sat in this perfect range where you could hear them. So you had this nice full sounding drum kit 
and nothing was competing. And then because Billy, the bass player, his tone is much more of a mid-range than a bass tone. There wasn't a lot of bass coming from the bass rig. So Pat's kick drum was providing all of that low end. But he understood it and he built his whole kit around how I'm going to fit in between the rest of this band so I know people can hear me. Otherwise, I'm just going to be the drummer in the back that no one ever hears or sees because there's all this other stuff going on. And so when you're a musician, that is the key to understanding frequencies, understanding where things are in the frequency spectrum, getting your tones dialed in so that you sound the best you can and that you fit in with everything else that's going on around you. And getting your tones and your sound and your vibe dialed in within your own space first. Yeah. Or you bring it into the interface and the. Yeah. Yeah. Because you want to start with, before you even start recording, make sure your instrument, whatever your recording sounds as great as it can acoustically. In, in that environment before you put a mic on it, because it's much easier to record a great sounding drum kit than record a drum kit that wasn't tuned properly, that sounded terrible, that had really beat up heads, and then try and make them sound good in your DAW. That's going to be a lot more work. And even if it's a synthesizer or a virtual instrument of any type, mm -hmm. still take, don't just put on the preset and go. I always preach about presets. I love presets. Presets are amazing, but I always start with the preset and then I adjust it a little bit to my needs to my mm -hmm. ears wouldn't you yeah yeah and that's the thing too like even for people who don't play live instruments and are using virtual instruments and samples there could be 30 different snare drums don't just pick the first one think about where that's going to sit with everything else if you've got 12 different synth patches happening and some bass drops and stuff like that, you want to make sure that you find the sounds that work with each other. And that's all by listening to the frequencies and then using EQ to, to shape them and sculpt them into the sound that you want. That's right. And I love that because also in, in digital music, we have so many, like you said, drops or rises and lifts, and there's so many samples and so many sound options. When you're putting it together, you say, okay, I want to fall out here and then I want it to drop here, but I have these 13 different 808s mm -hmm. and these 37 different hits and rises. Like, how do you decide? So what you're saying is listen to where they fall within the EQ spectrum mm -hmm. and cross-reference that with the other elements you have going on in the song, correct? Exactly. Okay. So it's I like to think of it as a puzzle EQ. You're figuring out how the pieces go together. Okay. Yeah. Great information. Yeah, it's all about where things, how they sound, and then how those sounds interact with the other sound. And then either shaping, sculpting, carving out space, whatever you need to do. I love it. So the, again, the whole purpose of this pro level sessions from home course is for me to take my 30 plus years in, the, in all the commercial studios and impart it to the user and show my best practices. Also my team, Eric G on keyboards and some vocals and Richie Pena on drums who records live drums from his basement up in Pennsylvania. Actually, he lives in Allentown. Oh, uh, nice. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I have to connect you to. Yeah. Uh, so we do all these live elements, but then we also do a lot of virtual stuff in the box. 
So we're teaching the user how to record and best practices there. You, and with what you do in your tutorials, you are teaching the fundamentals of audio and how to really learn the EQ spectrum and how to understand signal flow, gain structure and all that stuff. So what is your platform called and where can people go to learn more? Because let's be honest, to just turn on YouTube and be like, I'm going to learn how to properly engineer. Ugh, it's so hard. It's so overwhelming. Right? Yeah. The biggest thing is that you don't know what you don't know. So to me, I find that's the hardest thing for most people is when they're just getting started, they don't even really know what they need to be looking for. It's like, how do I record vocals? It's like, do you understand how to set up your DAW properly? Do you understand how to choose a microphone? Do you it's not just, oh, like you can find a million YouTube videos on here's my vocal signal path. But if you don't understand how to get good signal into that DAW, that signal path doesn't matter. So it's really understanding, like you said, going back to where do I start? What do I need to know? And what I have is my, my website is mixingmusiclive.com. And I have a free ebook that is five simple things you can do to improve your mixes right now that people can download and without having to spend any money on gear, we'll teach them five ways to improve the quality of what they're doing. Um, and I have a program, Listen. Oh, sorry. So sorry. Yeah. Okay. That's okay. Yeah. I have a program, Listen, that teaches how to use EQ and learn frequencies and learn all of that to create better mixes that are professional quality. You can find all of that and more on MixingMusicLive.com. And I was going to say, I love the fact that it's Mixing Music Live. And I would argue to say, well, people say, well, this is a home recording course. It's different than live. No, because the sound is live first. <laughs> no matter how you're creating it, if it's acoustic, even if it's digital, it's a live sound that you're creating right now. And it's synonymous, right? Sound is sound. Whether yeah. you hear it once or you hear it once and it's being recorded and then you can play it back. It doesn't matter. It's still the same sound. Yeah. I do have I have another course that is more for live mixing. It's called which is called Mixing Music Live that teaches the it's a basic introduction to live sound and mixing. But the course listen, which is all about using EQ and mixing techniques that is whether you're mixing live or in the studio because essentially the theory the fundamentals are the same it's just there are minor differences in the application of how you would use them okay if you're going to be eqing something in the studio you might do it this way versus if you're going to do it live then do this and i go over all of that in the course but yeah essentially sound is sound how we approach it the theory behind all of it is the same. It's just little differences in application. So let's say we have a user who's just starting out. They have a relatively newish computer within the past three to five years, but they have a little bit of older gear. They might have an old Pro Tools box. What was the box called? The interface? The M box. Oh, the M box, right? yeah. yeah. Maybe they have an old M box. <laughs> Maybe they have an old microphone that they got from a friend or whatever. It's not super top dollar, but it's decent. Should they go online and find the $6,000 home studio package that's got everything? Or should they just try to really learn how to maximize the gear that they have first? I would say you learn how to maximize what you have first. Here's the thing. like 
when you start out with low budget gear or what, even not even low budget, but okay. So it's not the top of the line, newest thing out there. Just, if you just take a couple of sure SM 57s and 58s and a basic DAW and use the EQ and the dynamics, the compressors that are in that DAW before you spend any money on plugins and start creating the best sounding mixes that you can with that. When you start investing in better quality preamps and different EQ plugins and things like that, your mixes are going to be amazing. But when you start out with just throwing on the most expensive stuff and you don't understand the fundamentals, you're, it's like I said before, it's not the gear that makes a great mix. You really under, need to understand what you're doing. And when I started mixing live, I spent a lot of years mixing in, in really crappy clubs with garbage gear. And it made me a better engineer because I had to really learn how to use EQ to make things sound good because, oh, we got a beat up old drum kit today and, uh, and the drum tech doesn't know how to tune drums. I guess I'm going to have to EQ out all those ringing notes and the toms. So it just, when you're working with lower quality gear, it's not always fun, but it will make you better at your craft so that when you do have the opportunity to work with good gear, it's just, wow, this was easy because you already learned those skills. As a guitarist, primarily, I always said, learn how to play on your dad's old crappy guitar where the action, the strings are this high off the fretboard and the, the strings haven't been changed in 38 years. And you just learn how to play on yeah. that first. Cause when you can master that and then you pick up a, a new electric that's smooth and easy and really nice to play, you'll be whizzing. You'll be just like amazing. So I do like that principle, that method. Start with where you are, start with what you have, and really learn how to maximize its potential. Michelle, this has been great. I really appreciate you joining me. Funny enough, we've known each other. We never met in person, and we've never worked together. So <laughs> <laughs> We have to change that. We do. That would be yeah. awesome to do some <laughs> gigs together. You've laid down a lot of wisdom here from your experience, and we appreciate that. Are there any closing thoughts that you would give to the career musician slash audio engineer who wants to do what you do? Yeah, I would say the biggest thing, which is it's hard for a lot of people, is you have to understand that you are a business. It's That's one thing when you're a creative type, you tend not to want to think of yourself as a business, but you are a business owner. It's like, you're the brand, you're the product, whether you're creating and writing songs or you're mixing music. To conduct yourself in that fashion will get you a lot further. Be professional. Even when you're waiting for that gig to happen, get up and work every day. If Even if that work, it just means you're making phone calls and networking or you're honing your craft or you're practicing your instrument. It may be, okay, I want my dream gig, but I'm still waiting. You can't wait for it to come to you. You have to go after it. So just operate every day like you're a business and you're going to work. And if that work is getting on the phone, trying to get hired, that's work. You just focus on going after dreams one step at a time and you'll eventually get there. I love that. I love that. Okay. So uh, one again, my principles here with the TCM, I always say you have to have a routine. Get up early and just start knocking things out and put it into a system that you can do over and over every day. 
as if you were at a regular job, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. When you work from home, that becomes <laughs> a little harder because <laughs> you're at the comforts of your own home. Now, I want to pivot, and I forgot to ask you this one thing. So this is the last question, and here's the great pivot. Mm -hmm. Working from home, of course, you don't have access to the acoustic treatments that a commercial studio might have. And I always say, I don't care if you're in a bedroom, an office, living room, closet, garage, basement, shed, bus, train, plane, hotel room, I don't care where it is, you can turn that into a studio. And I don't want people to be misled by that, but they just think, oh, I can just go anywhere and just start set up a microphone in the middle of the room and start going. You can, but you're gonna get the elements of that room, the ambience of that room captured in the mic. So what are some of the things that people can do, budget conscious, from their homes, the comfort of their own home, dress up, their home studio space in the proper manner, manner, acoustically speaking. Yeah. Here's one thing I saw about a week ago, which I thought was brilliant. Someone was trying to record vocals and they didn't have a vocal booth in their home and they didn't, and they had quite noisy neighbors. So they went out and got in their car and in the garage where they had a nice, they were fortunate enough to have a nice, fairly new car that was very quiet inside but that was their vocal booth. And I'm like, that is brilliant. Most new cars, it's like, they're pretty soundproof. And if you have a decent garage or even go to a garage, a parking garage that's empty, park outside of town somewhere where there's not a lot of traffic and noise and get your laptop and your interface and your mic. And there you go. You've got your, your mobile recording booth. Short of that, a big old cardboard box that you can put around the vocal, cover it with a heavy blanket. The more absorbent material in the room, the quieter it will get, you know, the fewer reflections. Turn off any electronics, anything that's got a fan or a motor or something that's running that you don't need while you're recording to whatever you can do to reduce the noise in that space, closing windows, closing the blinds, hanging up a heavy blanket over the window if you have a lot, a lot of noise outside. A lot of people do it every day. It's not that hard to do. It's I always use right now because it's current. I always use Billy and Phineas Eilish. They recorded most of her hit album in the bedroom. Mm -hmm. It's like in the bedroom right there. And he even says in his interviews, you can watch him. Billy sat on the corner of the bed. She sat and sang all of her lead vocals on the corner of the bed right there. And he's right here, a foot away, two feet away from her, just headphones. So it can yeah. happen, right? Yeah, yeah. You don't need a multi-million dollar studio space. And uh, yeah, that's the thing. If like you, you record, you focus on getting good quality sounds into your DAW and whatever you need to do that, yep. you've already got a good start. I'll never forget a very high-end producer. <laughs> he took a, a stab at me once. I was doing tracks from my home studio. And he goes, yeah, when Nomad records for us, you never know what you're going to get. A motorcycle, 
a plane, somebody laughing. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> and, and he's like, no, it's fine. I actually didn't need that track because I always give them way more tracks than they need. But uh, for some reason, it, it slipped through the cracks. So that's why I'm a big proponent of QC, quality control. So mm -hmm. after you record your tracks, solo them and go through, make sure that they're clean. So you're yeah. getting the sound of the instrument. Or the yep. Board. Yeah, exactly. And are, there's some, by the way, there's some tricks. I know I'm keeping you. I'm so sorry. That's there's okay. some tricks that you could use with EQ. We call it subtractive EQ to take mm -hmm. out noises that you don't want. Yeah, absolutely. There, there's one thing called the notch filter. If you've got, say you've got a frequency or something that, you know, is resonating in the room, you can use the notch filter to take that out. And yeah, e EQ is a perfect tool for removing unwanted frequencies and that's the thing too a lot of people get wrong is when they reach for the eq a lot of times they want to boost first they just want to use it to boost and with eq boosting is okay but you always want to cut first before like if you got a vocal that's muddy and you think oh i need to add more presence to it to hear it better before you do that, you want to clean up the muddiness with the EQ, and then you won't have to boost as much. Um, and the reason being, the, the big reason for that is that when you boost frequencies with the EQ, you're adding gain. So sometimes that can actually drive your signal into clipping if you're doing a lot of boosting with EQ. And also, back to frequencies and the frequency spectrum, doing a lot of boosting on a lot of different instruments starts eating up that space that we talk about. And when you're boosting highs on acoustic guitars and highs on the vocals and highs on keyboards. And all of a sudden, now the things that would normally appear in that frequency range, like the cymbals, get lost because you boosted those frequencies on all these other instruments. So always cut first when you're EQing. Okay. Quick little story of when you were working with a high profile artist and it got a little weird because they're like, oh, it doesn't sound right. I need to do this. And that you, you were trying to explain as best you can without ruffling feathers and stuff. Have you ever found yourself in a situation like that? A lot of singers love to cup the mic, to cover the capsule. That's where your voice needs to go in. And it's, yeah, it's your rap, a rapper. That's what you do. You cover the capsule. It gives you that sound. But when you're trying to get a really great vocal sound on stage or anywhere, when you cover the capsule, it just destroys the vocal. Mm. So... You always want to hold it by the stick, leave the capsule open to breathe. So I had one singer who they were doing this for two reasons. One, they sweat it really badly. So the mic was always very slippy in their hands. So they would try to grab the capsule to hold it better. So what I did was I took grip tape, like you would put on a tennis racket, wrapped the mic with that so they could get a good grip. But then they would find that sometimes when they couldn't hear themselves on stage, they would cover the capsule because that what happens is your voice gets like real mid-rangey. It takes out all that highs, all the air, and it's just going to get really honky. So it's more easier to hear in their mix. And I kept telling them like, look, just tell the monitor engineer you that you need these frequencies. When you can't hear, ask them to put these in. And they didn't want to do that. So finally, one sound check, because it was just, I would have a great sounding show and all of a sudden they'd grab the top of the mic and like it would just destroy their vocal sound in the mix. So I would be re-EQing, re-EQing. So finally we were doing a sound check and I grabbed him. I like, come out here. I want you to come out here and listen to this. So I, I held the mic. Now sing. And they sang. 
And then I had them hold the mic like they grab the capsule like they normally do and sing and hear what it sounded like in the PA. And as soon as they did that, oh, okay. Never cut the mic again because it just, sometimes they need to hear the difference to, but I can hear myself better on stage. I'm like, yeah, but you don't understand how bad you sound in the house. So... I love it. I love it. And if you're at home, the best way to curtail that is record yourself, put down your instrument or stop singing, listen, and analyze it. That's why yeah. you're recording. So. Yeah, exactly. Thank you so much for joining us. Everybody can go to mixingmusiclive.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.